Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at Acts chapter 1 through 5 in our Come Follow Me, and I really like the book of Acts. Acts is a good title for it because it's a lot of action, and it's the apostles now after Jesus is gone taking over, and it's really fun to see how energetic they are and the things that they do. I want to start and just give you one thing in each chapter that's interesting to me. And first of all, in the book of Acts, it says in verse 3, To whom also he, Jesus, shewed himself alive after his passion, those are the events of the atonement and crucifixion, by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So he spent forty days with them, teaching them, I want to look at the words infallible proofs. I had somebody, a friend of mine, email me and say, look up the lexicon on infallible proofs. Where, what was the Greek word that was translated or phrase into infallible proofs? And what does it mean? So this is, I'm going to read to you from a handout that I give my Religion 211 classes. And let me say Acts 1-3 again. To whom also... He, Jesus, shewed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now this is me talking. The Greek word, which the King James scholars translated as infallible proofs, is tekmerion, T-E-K-M-E-R-I-O-N. Strong's Concordance and the NAS Exhaustive Concordance, both respected biblical works, Define tekmerion as a sure sign. Strong's exhaustive concordance defines it as a token, as a defining fact. John Gill was an 18th century Baptist scholar who authored John Gill's exposition of the entire Bible in about 1748. He explained, And this evidence of his being alive he gave to them by many infallible proofs, or by many signs and tokens which were most sure and unquestionable arguments of his being alive. That's the end of the quote from John Gill's commentary. This is remarkable when we consider Brigham Young's description of the temple endowment, the most specific description I'm aware of given outside the temple walls. is what Brigham Young said. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord which are necessary for you, after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood to gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell. So it makes us wonder what was Jesus doing when he showed the apostles many infallible proofs. Perhaps he was giving them more, endowing them with power, as he said he would. Now, what happens later in Acts chapter 1 is they fill the vacancy created by Judas in the Twelve with Matthias. It's also interesting to note that in 4th Nephi, other uh, disciples were ordained in the stead of those that died, just kind of indicating that organization was intended to continue, at least for a while. Now, in Acts chapter 2, we have this day of Pentecost. And Peter preaches and gives this marvelous sermon. There came a rushing sound of, of like a great wind. What I've marked in my scriptures that I think is so interesting is verse 12. 
And they were all amazed and were in doubt, or the NIV says perplexed, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said these men are full of new wine. But if we go down to verse 41, we see that many received his word and were baptized. So if you are looking at our turtle house, you probably have a talk that I gave called Scripture Countdown, where I talked about number symbols in the scriptures. And one of those I referred to is the number four. We'll notice that four often means earth and man. There's the four quarters of the earth, the four directions, north, east, west, and south. Four different types of soil into which the parable of the sower, the seeds land in the parable of the sower. Some is hard ground, some is rocky, some is infested with thorns, and some is good ground. There are four groups in Lehi's dream. And here we have four reactions to the word of God being preached. Some were amazed, some were perplexed, some mocked, and some received. And I like to share that with missionaries just to know you're going to get all of these reactions as you go out and try to share the gospel. But some, thankfully, some will receive. Got to go find them. So what did Peter say when, verse 37, they were pricked in their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? I love that they had a question to what do we need to do? Not just what do we need to believe, but what do we need to do? Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the doctrine of Christ. Faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, receive the Holy Ghost. And 3,000 souls were added that day. What I love about this too is I feel like perhaps those who were continually plotting the death of Jesus, probably thought, okay, at last this problem is over. This rebellion against us and our power is over. And it wasn't over. It was just getting going. It reminds me of a Cincinnati Gazette on July 3rd of 1844. Here's the headline. Important from Nauvoo, death of Joe Smith and Hiram Smith, terrible excitement at the West. We yesterday received by the Western Mail the following particulars of the death of Joe Smith, the prophet, and his brother Hiram. They were both shot. There was a tremendous excitement at the West in consequence of their death. A dreadful civil war was expected. Thus ends Mormonism. So the reporter thought, with those last three words, okay, this thing is now over. The funny thing is, about 11 years later, thus ends the Cincinnati Gazette. So, how is the Cincinnati Gazette at prophesying? Not very good. And I feel like in the book of Acts, they thought, okay, finally we are rid of this, this Jesus of Nazareth, but this movement was just getting going. 3,000 souls in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Now in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And they saw a man who was asking for alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him, said, Look on us. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, and walk, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
what I love about this is the man thought he wanted silver and gold. And what sounds like, I'm sorry, I haven't got that, is actually, I will give you something so much better than silver and gold. And I think there's a beautiful lesson in that. Maybe we think in life, I could really use more silver and gold. I think that on some days. But the Lord has something better for us. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we can walk in newness of life. We can be better transformed people because of Christ. Or silver and gold could not do that for us. In chapter 4, we get an important verse, a couple of them that I just wanted to mention. Verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I've told in other settings on our Turtle House a time when I sat next to an evangelical minister on an airplane, and he said, if you never went to the temple again, could you be saved? And I, I told him I go to the temple because I believe the Lord wants me to. But we don't call the temple the Savior. We don't call the fact that I went on a mission the Savior. We don't call the fact that I go to church every Sunday the Savior. Who is the Savior? The only one who has the title the Savior is Jesus Christ in our church. He is the Savior. And he is the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Now, I'd love to say he was converted or something like that. But a lot of, we have a lot of things we, we do. We do a lot of stuff in our church, in our theology. But the Savior is always the Savior. And I just wanted to emphasize that to him. <laughs> that is the Savior is always the one who saves. And that is his title and the only one that we look to. The last thing I wanted to mention is Gamaliel's rule. That name we're going to encounter again because the Apostle Paul studied under this famous, this famous doctor of the law. So we're introduced to him in Acts chapter 5, verse 34. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. And he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Okay, talking about Peter, James, John. Let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. I just put in my margin, this, this is a good response to so many who try to fight against us. I wish we could just employ Gamaliel's rule. I've heard Dr. Robert L. Millett call this Gamaliel's rule. If this counsel is of men, it will mean it will come to nothing. But if it's God, you can't overthrow it. So you'll be found to fight against God. So 
Gamaliel's rule. I'm pronouncing that name as many different ways I can think of. I wish that we could apply that more today. I wish our enemies would apply that more today. Now, one of the the things that my son is dealing with on his mission in West Virginia is people that say, well, why are you preaching to us? We're already Christians. So here's our interesting dilemma. We've got the Great Commission in the end of the book of Matthew that says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've also got the article of faith that says, we claim the privilege of worshiping the Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all other men the same privilege. Yep, we've got both of those and we kind of put them together. So, as Joseph Smith said, I have no enemies, but for the truth's sake, I have no desire but to do all men good. I feel to pray for all men. We don't ask any people to throw away any good they have got. We only ask them to come and get more. President Gordon B. Hinckley said something similar. Bring all of the good that you have and let us see if we can add to it. And maybe we can employ Gamaliel's rule to each other. Well, I hope this has been helpful today and we'll see you next time.